Hello, my name is Philip Mirton, and today we are going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, today we have a special show because we have two of the world's leading thinkers on the topic of quantum theory to discuss with me what this theory tells us about the world. And those guests today are Fred Allen Wolf uh, and Diane Collins. I'm going to give a little further introduction for both of them, and they both deserve it in a couple of minutes. But first, I'd like to lay the groundwork. Now, many of us have heard of quantum theory or quantum mechanics, perhaps in the context of quantum computers or quantum teleportation or something. And perhaps some of us have read a few books on the topic. But some topics in science stimulate curiosity and cause us to look deeper for meaning. Other topics say something directly about the world and affect the way we live and who we are. Quantum theory does both. It may often be overlooked that quantum theory is the indisputable leading theory of physical reality. Now, since we are part of that reality, it might make sense to learn a little bit more about it because some people might think that reality is sort of important. Now, most people have heard of Albert Einstein, and some folks have heard of Niels Bohr. Einstein, we know, wrote the famous equation E equals mc squared, discovered the special theory of relativity, the general theory of relativity, which is gravity, and actually won the Nobel Prize for a different discovery concerning the photoelectric effect. In the early part of the 20th century, Einstein and Bohr had a famous debate about the nature of reality and more specifically about what quantum theory tells us about what is, what is reality. Einstein wanted to preserve a reality independent of the observer. Bohr argued that there is no reality without an observation. Although Bohr is usually considered to have won the debate, the debate continues to today and is a topic of today's show. Now, as I indicated, joining me for this conversation are two special guests. First, we have Fred Allen Wolf who is largely responsible for helping to bring the wonders of quantum theory to the general public through his writings, his lectures, his audio tapes, and his movies. His award-winning book, Taking the Quantum Leap, published in the early 1980s, is a classic in the field. He is a world-renowned physicist, writer, and lecturer who conducts research on the relationship of quantum physics to consciousness. He's the author of 13 additional books to Taking the Quantum Leap, three audio courses, and many popular science and popular articles. He's appeared in many nationally released films, including What the Bleep Do We Know, The Secret, The Evidence for Heaven, and Spirit Space. He's been interviewed all over the place, including New Dimensions Radio, NPR, Western Public Radio, and many others. He's appeared on TV, including the Discovery Channel's The No Zone, Sightings, The Thinking Aloud television series, the Evidence for Heaven, Down the Rabbit Hole, and the PBS series Closer to the Truth. His latest book, published last year, is entitled Time Loops and Space Twists, How God Created the Universe. 
So thank you very much, Fred, for being with us. We also have, as, co as guest co-hosts, Diane Collins, the creator of Quantum Think and author of the award-winning book, Do You Quantum Think? New Thinking That Will Rock Your World. She has developed Quantum Think, which is an entirely new system of thinking for accessing our full potential, integrating science, spirituality, and philosophy, and drawing on sources that range from cutting-edge scientific innovations to the wisdom of the world's greatest spiritual teachers. She's a master of translating ancient knowledge into modern quantum terms that provide a practical and transformative platform for the way we conduct our business and personal affairs. So once again, I'd like to thank both of you for being here. Now, Diane's going to serve as co-guest host, and maybe sometimes she'll be a guest as well, so she's going to be both here. But we're going to start off by, um, by turning to you, Fred, and maybe you could tell us, in your, in your words, what is the quantum world and why should we care about this topic? Well, briefly, it's the whole world. It's the universe. Everything in it is based upon quantum physics. There is nothing that we can experience that doesn't utilize the principles of quantum physics in its behavior. Sometimes the quantum physics is not obvious to those that are utilizing it, um, and it requires some skill to bring out or to separate out that aspect of quantum physics which shows some of the, the marbles that it contains. Uh, in everyday life, uh, usually what we call classical physics or the worlds of large objects moving rather slowly in space and time, uh, quantum physics plays a very minor role. It, uh, it's, uh, it's unnecessary. Uh, it's too refined we're looking at a very coarse-grained or gross worldview. But when we come into human beings and the way they respond and their sense data and the way the brain and mind integrate, and when we come to uh, other aspects <clears throat> in which experimentation is done to measure these very refined elements of the world, Quantum physics plays an enormous role, and it's because of the role that it plays that it's completely influenced and changed our thinking. It's made let, let me first of all speak about uh, what it applies to. It basically is the physics of things that move both very fast, very in very small and very in, in very small amounts in very small distances. So it's something which usually governs the very small, the very tiny, and the very, and the very quick. So it's a realm that normally is beyond our everyday kind of usual experiences of life. Um, but but uh, because we've refined that to such a large extent, we now are able to uh, make measurements or look at things on such a scale that the result of that has produced a tremendous number of technological innovations which has made modern life possible. This conversation that we're having right now over Skype is totally and absolutely impossible to have without quantum physics. 
Quantum physics makes the modern computer possible. Quantum physics makes almost any form of communication that we have today, including the internet, uh, the modern computer, uh, lasers, uh, there's so many, modern chemistry, it makes so many things possible that uh, it is really the science of the 21st century that began actually in the 20th century. My interest goes into applying quantum physics to the ideas of it, not only to the new technologies, which I'm very much interested in, such as the world of quantum encryption, which is the use of quantum physics to encrypt information so that it can't be copied uh, without paying for the artist's uh, creation. In other words, if a musician makes some music um, and uh, it's sent on a television stream or on a, on a internet channel uh, to you, you can then copy it and send it anywhere you want in the world. And so there might be 50 million copies of this artist's work out there, and the artist has only been paid for one. Yeah. So quantum encryption or new ways of encrypting information will make that not possible. That's one area that I'm very interested in from the point of view of technology, being fair and making other jobs, making jobs possible. But I'm also interested in how it applies to our spiritual sense of being and how it applies to our minds and our consciousness. And this is where I think uh, uh, we have uh, new insights coming into, in, into being. And this is where Diane really enters into the equation in a, in a very, very magical and, and uh, inspiring way. She's taken some of these principles and she said, let me understand them. She's understood them. And now let me see how to apply those into the world of helping others, assisting others to think in a different way so that they can perform tasks which they may have previously thought were not things they could do. And that's a whole other area which quantum physics has opened uh, for exploration. Uh, you might call it the positive thinking realm or the, uh, uh, the, the new age realm. Um, it's opening many, many doors in the 21st century. It's, very, it's, it, it's amazing to contemplate what, what is going on. But even in the film industry, we're seeing, uh, first of all, we're seeing quantum physics and new ideas expressed in the content of film and the dramas themselves, but it's also playing a role in the technologies in which the film is developing. Uh, anything you see practically now, the so-called 3D films, without the use of quantum physics, none of that animation would have been possible. But even more so, because the principles are also being illustrated, people are coming away with a sense of magic that they wouldn't have ever gotten before. So I'm probably over length and I, I'm over, over speaking this, but, uh, uh, it, it to me, it's uh, it's it's really the 21st century we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's remarkable that that it's it's had such a pervasive effect on our modern culture, and I think uh, turning to you, Diane, I think that it, you know as Fred said, you've you've taken sort of the theory of quantum uh, mechanics and moved it into the personal potential area. And why don't you speak a little bit about what inspiration you got from, from quantum theory to develop your quantum think model? 
I'd love to, Philip. Thank you. And thank you, Fred. Always eloquent. And I have to say that <laughs> what inspired me was Fred because I, I, I kind of thought you were going to say that. So I, know, didn't, I didn't want to say it. I guess I was born, you know, a spiritual seeker, I could say. And it seemed to me that the outer world, the ordinary world that we live in every day, wasn't matching what I was uh, studying, experiencing through spiritual wisdom and spiritual practices. And one day I came across uh, an article that Fred had, I, I forgot, Fred, whether it was written about you or you wrote it probably, in, and it was in Yoga Journal, and it was, you know, many years ago. I mean, <laughs> we don't want to age ourselves, but let's say Fred and I met in the early 90s because of it. And when I read that article, you know, I had read the Tao of Physics, so I started to see, oh, wow, quantum theory, the science is finally catching up with what the spiritual masters, the science of consciousness, has been around for thousands of years. So, this was what really sparked my interest. What if we could have a shift in consciousness, have a whole shift in the way that we relate to one another in the world by being able to translate it through something as credible, as verifiable, as uh, new science, as quantum science. So Fred and I connected and... Um, and I started to learn what actually uh, was a catalyst for me to create Quantum Think as a system. And that is, Fred, because you and I were talking uh, <laughs> one day when we first met and, uh, you know, meeting on that project with a fellow independent TV producer. And what you pointed out to me was that Science makes discoveries. Scientists make discoveries. And in their discoveries, invent new language. And that the language filters into our thinking and eventually into our culture. I know you're interested, Philip, in the idea, you know, the question of why haven't we, as a whole culture, even the scientific culture, embraced fully these ideas of, of, of the quantum reality, which is, for me, the basic paradigm shift from a matter-based to a mind-based uh, reality and begin to thinking that way. So through you, Fred, then I started to realize, you know, that, wait a minute, it's not just, you know, one concept at a time, a quantum leap, as the example that you pointed out to me, one of them, but it's the whole system. It's the whole worldview. So what came to me through knowing Fred and through our conversations and my own investigations that, and, you know, my past <laughs> as a philosophy major and, you know, graduate student in philosophy, realizing, well, they, you know, they were going around in circles, right? That, uh, that, if we could literally make a quantum leap in consciousness and start to live from this more expanded and more accurate, as Fred, you say, 21st century worldview, 
the what we know today at the edge of what we know certainly uh you're you know the <laughs> the expert and one of the leading most uh progressive and advanced thinkers on this planet in combining all of what we're talking about that if we could introduce the principles as a system that we could literally make the leap and start to use these natural faculties of mind, not the psychology of mind, not, uh, you know, the brain connections which are associated with it, but the actual faculties of mind, the power of intent, uh, the power to, of observation, and all of these qualities that quantum science is bringing to light for us in everyday life. So that's really what happened for me. But I'd be interested to know, Fred, from your view today, what is it that is having uh, the, other than they're not in this conversation with us, but what do you think we could do more to have the scientific community really make this kind of a leap? Or what well, do you think a, is in the way? Well, there's, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I recently wrote a, a book review of uh, Rupert Sheldrake's latest work um, in which he takes the task science for failing to include anything in their meanderings into the nature of reality, uh, the mind and how mind enters into, the, into it when the evidence of mind entering into science is overwhelming. And uh, uh, in writing the review, um, I was reminded, and, and this, pardon me for taking a little longer to answer this, but it's kind of amusing. And um, answering the view, uh, I read one of the first reviews of Rupert Sheldrake's books when he first started writing about the existence of a morphogenetic field, that one reviewer from Nature magazine said this is a book for burning, meaning, and he, he's a scientist, nature is very, very erudite, very closed-minded scientific community of scholars. They're very good, they're very smart, but they're very closed. And he said, you know, it was surprising to me, this is a book for burning, and he, he wasn't apologizing for this. Uh, it, was, it was shades of Nazi Germany or shades of the days of, uh, <laughs> of, of Bruno when he got burned at the stake. So I, so I took up that theme and I said, well, maybe what we're looking at right now is the, the 21st, 20th, 1st, 20th century reaction to what took place at the time of Bruno when the clerics burned any science that contradicted their holier-than-thou views. So they put people to the stake and uh, burned them and stuff like that. And I think, well, maybe this is, a re this is just Sheldrake's morphogenetic field acting over centuries, <laughs> and now it's the scientists who are acting like the clergy of old times, and they're burning anything which yeah. contradicts yeah. the sacrosanct view that they have of their religion, which is called materialistic science. Yeah, right. Method, yeah. That is so, so funny, Fred. Yeah, so method. it's very funny to me. And uh, so I wrote this review, which is in the Journal of Scientific Exploration, 
uh, and I'll be happy to send you copies of it if you would like to read it. Um, but the basic idea is just that there is an intrinsic fear, and uh, what where it comes from is totally irrational. Yeah, well, it's interesting that that it seems as if you know you mentioned Bruno. It seems like the methods of of uh, sort of uh, snuffing out the competition uh, have, have just changed over time, um, but. I think there's, a, there's multiple facets to this. It reminds me so much of, of Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions, where in that book he talks about normal science being practiced and, and that those who are practicing normal science in the existing paradigm sort of, sort of fight off uh, things that don't fit the paradigm, the anomalies. And, and I, think that's, I think that's part of it. But, but I do think that it's multifaceted. I, I think the resistance, and I, you know, Diane, I, I do have an interest in changing the mindset like a, like, a, like a lot of us, but I do think it's multifaceted. And I agree with Fred that it is deep. This is not, this is not like, you know, convincing, you know, somebody to change colleges or something. This, this is a deeply rooted paradigm. Uh, it I, is. I, yeah, I, I just want to interject one small thing. The new physicists that are coming on the block now, the ones that in high school were reading my book, Taking the Quantum Leap, and other books that came out during that early time period, they're not so much against this idea. They're not so much against it. In fact, another, I mentioned another book uh, was called How the Hippies Saved Physics. I'm one of the hippies that saved physics, by the way. This was this took place in the yeah. This took place in the early '80s when we were talking about all this weird stuff of quantum physics, Bell's theorem, and faster-than-light communication, all stuff. Which, by the way, is the basis for this whole new industry called the quantum encryption game and quantum computers. I mean, it's a brand new thing which has sprung out. Well, the guy that wrote the book interviewed myself and. Other and, and other people who did far more work on it than I did even, but we were all part of this little group and uh, uh, said that basically if it wasn't for our work, we wouldn't have inspired these younger guys to get into this game. Yeah. And so the game they've gotten into is far more interested in the effect of observation and measurement on what's being observed or measured than ever before. So the game has changed. It, it right. is change. And if we look 50 years down the line, um, we're going to see this whole question. People are going to be wondering why people were so resistant to it, because there'll be a develop. This whole thing is going to develop into a science in which it's understood that mind, observation, consciousness has a role to play. It's not just uh, an empty field. Exactly. And you know what? I had written, like, I call it a quantum think wave in my book about, it's called Time for a New Science. So I'm really happy to hear you say that about these up-and-coming, you know, younger scientists, younger minds, because when you, if you're looking at Max Planck, right, there is no matter as such. And everything that you talk about and we all know about at least something, uh, it's still mysterious, as you say, but something about this idea of there is no world without mind, that's how I would say it, but that if there's no matter as such, and if physics is the science that studies like 
what is the isness, and we'll use that word, of of nature? You know, what is the nature of things? That maybe that's the wrong question. That we need to be more in the question of, and what you just pointed out that they're looking at, how does, what is the effect of consciousness? How can we work with consciousness? What does it mean, the effect of observation? How is the interplay of what we call matter and mind to mind and mind to matter? So that you're, it seems like, Fred, what do you think about that? That there, it's, we actually need a new science and p- possibly a new methodology because if our technologies are designed in the, in the context, in the paradigm of the matter-based, the materialistic, scientific materialism, then do you think that it's possible we could use another methodology, scientific method, for studying consciousness? What do you think? Well, uh, let me make a comment about a couple of things that you said. First, it's interesting that you brought out Max Planck who was the early discoverer of the uh, photonic or, or quanta uh, concept as it involved the behavior of light and heat, uh, because he was a materialist. I mean, he couldn't, he was almost against what he, what he discovered. In fact, the, uh, as the discoveries of quantum physics began to m- uh, move from the early periods of, the, of, the, of 1905, 1910, 1915 through the 20s into the 30s, everybody was just like, what's going on here? We don't understand this. It makes no sense. It it doesn't fit. I mean, they were very much reacting to their own discoveries. They were making them, but they never really quite believed it. Even even, uh, Erwin Schrodinger, who discovered what is called the quantum wave function aspect of quantum physics, when he made that discovery, he said, if I would have known that this would lead to this damned quantum jumping, I would never have invented it in the first place. <laughs> he was so upset. I mean, he and, and he was uh, very much a, a a Buddhist theologian. He was very much into uh, the whole questions of reality and the nature of reality. But he never, in his own mind, at least as far as we can tell from his writings merged what his discoveries in quantum physics were telling him about the Buddha nature. Uh, to me, coming, you know, 50, or 50 to 100 years after his great discoveries, actually not quite 100, but 50 to 75 years after he made these discoveries, to me it's obvious what the connection is, but it wasn't so obvious to him. Yeah. And so I'm looking at, you know, this is the nature of consciousness itself. Um, we tend to clutch our own ideas. We tend to clutch them uh, as if they were life rafts. And if we let go, there's a fear that we're going to die. That uh, So new ideas are not readily acceptable. There's uh, always going to be skepticism. And uh, in some ways, that's a good thing because there's the opposite side of that, which is total belief in anything. Yeah. 
You can sell me snake oil. It'll cure. It'll do anything from grow hair to give me stronger erections. I want the snake oil. I mean, you know, and that's being right. sold today. So, uh, you know, under the name quantum, you have quantum this, quantum that. Yeah. And, and that's totally the other side of the question is that you got so much fraudulent or, or just simply cashing in on the, on, on the word kind of, of, of stuff uh, catching people's attention that they're not going to know what to believe. So there has to be, you have to be, you have to have some skepticism. Um, it, I don't even accuse people of being frauds, uh, of actually m deliberately fooling the public. I don't think they're doing that. I think they actually believe in what they're selling, but they don't have any idea as to how one really tests or makes solid observations in order to confirm that what they're selling is something that another person could also use and expect the same results. Mm -hmm. And this is what I'm saying about maybe we need a new method just in a strict scientific basis. But then, then again, you know, I was thinking of this term, you know, the politics of experience, what you were talking about, Philip, how, and, and you, Fred, about where people just, you know, we won't want to believe it because the politics of our own experiential world tells us that it's physical. And of course, you know, the industrial age said, oh, it's physical. Only physical matter is real. So we're, we're so, when you say, Philip, it, it, it's deep. I think it's deep beyond even the convention of science it's deep in our own ex politics of experience to be able to make that leap and then fred what you were saying and i was going to ask you about that because so many scientists get upset maybe they would get upset with what i'm doing which is i'm saying i'm not a scientist what i i'm not you know, I think everyone should study the science. Not everyone will, but there, ha like, to be able to be some kind of a bridge, where what I'm doing is saying, since our thinking is influenced by these discoveries of science, instead of waiting, as Lincoln Barnett uh, uh, said in the little book on Dr. Einstein. You know, it could take 50 to 100 years for, for the discoveries of science to filter into our culture. Of course, it's much faster now because of technologies and the Internet. But that what if we did this proactively? And I think, Philip, that's what you're doing, of course, with your show and bring this up. But, you know, to really be able to say this is an aspect of using these faculties consciously, you know, with, as conscious acts of awareness and being able to, how do we, how do we, how do we test these things, Fred? How do we prove that what I have already proved with my partner, husband, you know him, Alan Collins, that we've been working with people from around the world with executives in major corporations in the United States federal agencies, leaders, that where they're taking these principles, which are based in quantum discoveries, and they're just using them. So in a sense, obviously, that's, quote, anecdotal proof. 
but I don't, I don't, I can't think of a better proof, but then we do want to be able to have some rigor around how do these principles work in ordinary human experience. Yeah, this is, this is, uh, first of all, this is Philip Mirton. I'm speaking with uh, Fred Allen Wolf, the author of Time Loops and Space Twists, How God Created the Universe, and of course the early classic Taking a Quantum Leap, and Diane Collins author of Do You Quantum Think? And we're talking about quantum theory and what it tells us about the world. And Diane, that was, that's, a, that's a great foray. And I'm going to pile on Fred right now because, because uh, there's, there's two points that I think are important here. In, in, in my reading on this topic, it seems to me that modern science wants to keep alive part of the Einsteinian perspective on reality. They want to keep an independent world out there in order to do what they think is required for science. In other words, I think many scientists believe they need this material world to practice the discipline of science. And I think that, Diane, you know, we're, we're sort of together on this because it's sort of like Maslow and his hammer. You know, if all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Maybe ultimate reality is not something that could be measured by the instruments of science. Why do you pick the tools out first before you realize what, what reality is? Are, are we making a mistake in, in assuming it has to be measured, it has to be weighed, it has to be, you know, uh, the luminosity has to be measured, the distance has to be gauged, all these things. Why, 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 why constrain ourselves to something that can be measured? So, Fred, your turn. Uh, okay. You comment on that. Well, th these are very good questions, and... Uh, they require a little bit of thinking, so let me just put some thought into this and uh, begin with uh, uh, this realization. First of all, let's go back to Einstein again, since he seems to be somebody who has definitely affected mass consciousness over the last more than 100 years. <clears throat> One of the debates that you talked about between Bohr and Einstein at the start of the show, um, interestingly enough, was misunderstood by those of us, many of us, that came after the debate who weren't around around 1927 at the famous conference when this debate took place. Because it turned out, when you looked at the debate very carefully, they were not talking about the same physics. They already had split in their understanding of physics. Quantum physics put in a schism. And it's taken us a while to recognize that. Einstein was talking about the materialistic world in which he was saying quantum physics shows us that our understanding of the materialist world is incomplete. And that's really what Einstein was saying. Uh, it doesn't, quantum physics doesn't really explain the materialistic world. It, there's something missing. There's something we don't see. And of course, now we can jump ahead 100 years or more, a little less, and we know that mind is what's missing. Bohr, on the other hand, who recognized that uh, something was missing as well, didn't argue the point. He just simply said, there's nothing missing because quantum physics doesn't deal with the real world. It deals with what we think is the real world. 
Now that's a very different kind of thing. It's yeah. a very yet, profound statement. This this was not necessarily a kind of thing that physicists were prepared in their thinking to even address. Because previous to this discoveries of quantum physics, we think is the material world, and what we measure is the material world, we're the same thing. Never was the question raised that you could think of something that wasn't measurable. If you thought of something that wasn't measurable, it was nonsense or fantasy or science fiction or, uh, you know, uh, religion or something like that. And that, that was okay. You could think about that stuff. But it wasn't anything that could be shared in a way in which agreement could be obtained between various people. And this now gets to the second part, which is part of Philip's question. Why does science insist on measurement? Okay, it's very simple why measurement is important. The reason it's important is that it's the basis by which communicating individuals, people, can come to agreement about their observations. It's very difficult, for example, for you and I or anybody else to agree on God. What is God? Um, can we measure God? Uh, or that's, that's almost impossible to find any measurement that we can uh, try, that we can uh, ascribe to, to God. Uh, if I say, what is the color green? That's difficult, but we do have a way of measuring what is universally accepted as green color, and that's simply its wavelength. We can measure the wavelength of light, which is green. So we have a way of determining the green color that's objectively, totally, convincingly communicated, even if you're colorblind. You can know a colorblind individual who simply is measuring the frequency or the wavelength of the light that he or she is receiving can know when green light is coming in or when the light has different mixtures. And that means it's the basis by which we have a communication. It's not necessarily the communication of things like feelings or like inspiration uh, or intent uh, or any of these so-called immeasurable, because these are what we call the subjective world. This doesn't make science bad. It just means that science is incomplete. It can't complete the picture because its nature is measurement and communication of, object, of objective qualities of our experiential life. Let me ask you this then. Uh, first of all, you know, before when you were talking uh, about Einstein, uh, I was thinking, well, right, we need to be in the both and, <laughs> we need to be in the both and world, right? In the both and conversation of this. Uh, and not try to make it the split, you know, is there a, is there an a, a objective world? Is there a sub, subjective reality? And, you know, never the twain shall meet, but really start to think of it both end. So in terms of measurement, Fred, and wouldn't that be, let's say, if we look at what consciousness is, you know, consciousness is it's too broad of a term, but let's just say intention. 
let's say you were measuring, and I know that there is some work being done with this measurement of intention now, uh, that if you were measuring intention or if you were devising a kind of a measurement that could, wouldn't it be what exactly what you're saying? Like this in a similar way that you can measure the frequency of color, could we measure the frequency of intent, intention? If intention had a color or had an well, attribute. It has a, but it has a frequency. Well, no, we don't. That's the point. Or it affects if it, a frequency. If, if we knew it had a frequency, we could measure it. But we don't know it has a frequency. Um, so I, I'm not sure how one could measure what is not a knowable, what, what, what is a quality that we haven't determined. Well, um, let's say that because it's not an it, right? Let's say it's just directional. I don't even know. I don't know how to talk about it exactly either. But let's say, well, the way that I use it with my, with my own clients <laughs> is that intent activates a field. So if the field has frequency, then theoretically you could measure, you could devise measures that instead of measuring intent itself, the effect of. You once told me that nobody has ever seen an electron. You only know it by what it leaves behind, right? Right. Yeah. So maybe it's something like that. I don't know, but uh, I agree, you know, and have always uh, really admired you for, you know, wanting to make sure that everyone understands the importance of measurement. I just, well, you know, it's pretty clear that we need to develop some new forms. Well, what about the whole concept of, of virtual particles? I mean, talking about something that is, is really a fill-in, I mean, I mean, Fred. I mean, aren't aren't virtual particles? I mean, by definition, they're not they they're not supposed to exist. They exist in that in that tiny uncertainty uh, that quantum theory allows for, right? I mean, and I mean, do do virtual particles really exist? Well, that's a good question. Again, uh, I want to bring us back to the Bohr-Einstein debate. Okay. For Einstein, they don't exist. For Bohr, they do exist. So here we are again. Yeah. And uh, the only difference between this and, say, Diane's desire to make a measurement of intent is that we have a way of measuring the qualities of virtual particles, not measuring them physically, but in our minds, we see them as having the qualities of frequency or energy or any of those uh, in some uh in some logical manner. Uh, so we, at least in our minds, in our epistemology, our theoretical development of the ideas of the world, virtual particles play a huge role. They're very important. We can't really do uh, quantum physics, uh, at least the quantum physics which is involving <clears throat> the uh, existence of matter and antimatter and how quarks and uh, uh, sub other sub subnuclear particles behave, we really can't, we can't do 
physics without these virtual particles. They play a very necessary role. They act as communicators between the so-called massive particles, the things that we can measure. But you see, there's a, there's a subtle difference here. Um, we need the virtual particles even if we don't see them in actual reality. Uh, they satisfy certain logical constraints that the field of science has raised in order to produce the results that we can measure and logically deduce. If these virtual particles really did not have any existence epistemologically, if they didn't have any existence in our thinking, then our thinking would have gaps in regard to how it is that we observe what we do observe when it comes to the kinds of observations that take place <clears throat> at these big particle accelerator labs. So you see, this is where we get into a very fuzzy area. This is really what you know I take back to Bohr-Einstein because it's still it's still a question of what can we legitimately talk about in physics, even if we don't observe things that we talk about in physics and what can we not legitimately talk about in physics even though we don't observe these not talked about things in physics these are the questions and what seems to be happening is that area which is kind of metaphysical in a way because it's dealing with our thought process that area seems to be expanding <clears throat> what we can legitimately include in it now includes a lot of things that previously we couldn't think about. Uh, we, we were trying to invent something. With, there's a thing we call quantum entanglement. You probably have heard this terminology right. before, right. <clears throat> where somebody measure, has two objects which interact and then separate right. by a vast distance, and an observation of one of them instantly affects the other. And the question is, well, what is being affected and how is it being affected? Physicists were trying to find some way to label that. One physicist called it passion at a distance. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> like that one. Passion That's at a, a distance. Because a uh, it's uh, like you have instant psychic communication. Yeah. Uh, you feel something, yeah. but it's not necessarily, necessarily something that you can put into words as saying, oh, that means... Joe did this, or Ann did that. Yeah. Well, but, I, oh, I feel like Joe's on the line, or Ann's on the line. You know, you know that kind of thing. You know, you know, right, I, like an inner knowing. Uh, yeah, but just, yeah, it's yes. an instantaneous knowing. But, yeah, but and if, so, if, we didn't have, if we didn't have entanglement, this sort of idea of this kind of teleportation or telecommunication, uh, uh, we never would have thought of looking further into the epistemics, that is, the theory of these kinds of things, quote-unquote things, which are not measurable things, but nevertheless have measurable consequences, we never would have expanded our vocabulary into them. It's these, these things are unthinkable in classical physics. We, we wouldn't have had any reason for thinking them up in the first place. Well, but when in you, quantum, phys quantum physics, we do. When you look at the, the that makes, it's actually logical that they wouldn't think of it in classical physics because if you're coming from a materialist worldview, that's going to shape the whole way you think and what you're looking at and what you're looking for and what you're looking from. So 
it makes sense they would never go to mind. And, you know, I use this uh, applying it to everyday life in the take the edu take the education system, right? In our traditional educational uh, development, which is based in that worldview, we study the brain. We study, well, we study maybe the psychology of mind, but we don't actually study until maybe today, I don't know if in early education, the younger years, I know we have consciousness studies now, but we don't, it's logical because from that worldview, we do not study mind. So from a science point of view, they're not going to be looking at these questions of mind. But the I think the cosmic joke, Fred, <laughs> is that virtual is of mind, <laughs> as you're pointing out. And so in order to talk about it, when you say, well, you know, Einstein, Bohr, I mean, if we look at both and, isn't it, does it matter the nomenclature, you know, is it real? Is it not real? Is it on tick? Is it epistemic? Is it, you know, inside? Is it outside? Isn't the more important thing of what you said, we can see the consequences of what we're looking at. Isn't that the more uh, important aspect of this whole thing? Well, Rather than the naming, you know, the naming convention, is it real, is it not real, is it virtual, is it real? You know, to make these, dis to know that you're making distinctions and not definitive, uh, fixed absolutes, but you're making distinctions enables you to work with it. Or I like the way I heard, once heard Peter Russell say, you know, the latest theory of science is the myth around which we base, you know, our actions and our research, not myth like it's false, but a mythology, like a story that we're, we're uh, deducing, we're contriving, we're conjecturing so that we can progress in science. Well, not only progress, yeah, it, it, let me just add a couple. It's not just to progress in science. It's to evolve as a culture, as human beings. Right. Uh, uh, we need, you see, you see this, uh, what appears to be an artificial division between <clears throat> what we think is real that is unmeasurable or cannot be measured or cannot be observed, which affects that which is measurable, which can be observed, <clears throat> and the things that we can think about, which are observable and can be observed, um, for most people's lives, it's the latter, the things that we can think about, which we can observe, that mostly affect their lives. Um, yet what's governing their ability to make those kinds of observations and think that way are really these unmentionable or unobservable, but nevertheless meaningful qualities uh, which affect thinking. Uh, where your work comes into uh, importance is in that area. Uh, <clears throat> uh, in order to make a baseball player, for example, hit the ball better, 
that's where the area of work needs to be done. It's the way the baseball player thinks about what is the basis upon which he, his choices for the way he swings, for when he swings, for how he swings, for if he swings at all when a ball is being pitched. Not only is it he's basing that on what he's observing, but there's some invisible things that are going on which make him a unique hitter as compared to somebody else. I've seen, you know, right now the Giants, San Francisco Giants, have won the Western Division. They're going to be racing for the uh, pennant and for the World Series, hopefully. And watching one of the baseball players bat as compared to another player in the same team, both these guys are top athletes. They wouldn't be in the major leagues if they weren't. One of them uniquely knows how to hit in such a way that it's like his mind is working in this realm of the invisible, the unmeasurable in a way in which he can command the baseball bat. Whereas other batters maybe are still trying to figure out, is he going to throw a curve? Is he going to throw a fastball? Should I hold my bat this way? In other words, they're still doing the thinking in terms of what is out there for them to observe, whereas the hitter is thinking about, it's my intent to hit this ball. I'm going to stay relaxed until I do hit this ball. I will be able to see this ball better. These are the things which are unobservable objectively, but yet totally affect what he's going to do. But so I that's where like, your like, work comes into. That that's what makes your work important. Yeah, I have to yeah. say I have to say that that one of the remarkable things that's going on right now in science and and primarily um, these new discoveries, uh, the new theories, uh, in, such as the graviton, the multiverse, the the uh, the inflationary big bang, string theory, is that when you start moving up this ladder. You go from things that are that that no one will dispute are real, such as baseballs being thrown into into a net or against the wall, and we and you know and we want to see these little particles out there bouncing around like billiard balls, but then but then you have quantum theory taking over, and all of a sudden the things aren't things anymore, and then you have these virtual particles, then you have entanglement. You have the horizon problem, which we don't have time to get into, where you have where where you have this communication between opposite ends of the universe, and was there enough time for the for there to be a balance and the cosmic background radiation, that whole thing, and then you got the multiverse. You know, how do you prove a multiverse exists? You got string theory. People are wondering how do you prove string theory? Science starts getting into this metaphysical area, just like you mentioned, Fred. And then up the other ladder, you have the spirituality. You have the Eastern, you know, the Eastern tradition where people are finding truth from inside. They're meditating. They're getting feelings of, of oneness and all this. And I think that's really, that's really what's going on in my mind. We're having a convergence of modern physics and cosmology with the Eastern traditions. And, and I think that's where, where I would agree with Diane because all, all she's talking about, it, it seems to me, is that, is that who cares if something's invisible because, because it could be that there is a power, the force, that is invisible. <laughs> and, and, and you do see the effects. I mean, the placebo effect, for example. Is you know what 
what belief affects the human body? Where, how, where is that belief? You know? Yeah, the, the other thing is the word invisible is the word <clears throat> that I wouldn't use here, although it's certainly one that's easily understandable. Invisible implies something that's real but not seen. Okay. What we're talking about is something which exists in another realm entirely. It's something which is mindfully logical but doesn't exist visibly or invisibly at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's in a sense unknowable. I call it's, it living it's, in the unknowable. Yeah, yeah, but knowing but no, that no, no, there no, is no, an unknowable. No, no it, it is knowable. That's what makes it powerful. It can be known. Yes. But it can't. It, it, it's not in the vast unknowable, which is then, you know, that's infinite. But it's that which becomes knowable, that which ekes out of the vast unknowable into that which is affecting or logically manipulating or changing the ways in which what is observable and visible and out there can occur. Right, so it is knowable. The, it, I mean, you're in the business of knowing, you're in the business of bringing that knowledge, knowledge out. And that's what makes the kind of business of quantum think powerful and why it's necessary. And, uh, uh, you know, you when know. you were ta when you were talking about the baseball players, yeah, and I was thinking, you know, it's like when you're when you're operating only in the classical worldview, like some of the those players where you said they were using ordinary logic. What do I have to do? How do I need to manipulate? You know, what I'm right. doing. That's important. It's all important. All of it. <clears throat> and I was thinking, well, they're in the particles. <laughs> they're in the particle. And the hitter who you were talking about, he's in the field. <clears throat> yeah. It's like when you start to maybe what, right? What we're talking about is just acquiring a way of distinguishing what we're actually observing and or experiencing. You know, like from a qualitative, what you're saying, that, you know, that feeling, that intuition, that intent, and being able to distinguish it in such a way that we can then begin to uh, have science grasp it. But I think what Philip has been bringing out during this entire conversation is that it does, at the same time, in order for that to happen, there, there has to be this leap in the overall mindset where we, uh, you know, like the younger physicists coming up who you spoke about, Fred, that, yeah, we realize the importance of this because of what you're saying, Fred. It's like everything in life. It has, er just like that San Francisco Giants hitter, has everything to do with his what we could call right your state right your state of being your state of mind your state of relationship of all of you know your whole repertoire of of talent skills experience and relating it specifically in that exact moment of hitting the ball i mean that that's how i see it is like really being able to realize that this is what we're living in and now it's exciting 
Well, this is what's exciting to me, and, and, and that is, suppose, and this could be in hypotheses, but suppose at the base of reality is this uh, knowable uh, other dimension, or, or this, or this, this I, I use the word invisible, but, but I, I like Fred's spin on it better. If, 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 if the core reality is this uh, uh, knowable but not visible force, then we do have things upside down. We're sort of looking for an objective material particle or something out there when actually that's secondary. That comes second. And, and, so, and so, Diane, you know, by, by this, the quantum thinking and, and, and the other, uh, the intention and the positive thinking and, and that whole thing, you know, it's really sort of grasping on to the ultimate reality. Therefore, it's gonna push you farther along it's going to it's it's going to it's going to propel you faster because you're you're in tune because and, and once you acknowledge it then that becomes your reality right 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 that's right that. right 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 fred um i don't know how much time we have philip well for, I, I think that at, at this point i i want to bring things to a close and i and i'm going to i'm going to let maybe fred and then you just say any any parting observations because there's no possible way we could do justice to this conversation in an hour although i think we've covered some interesting and territory and some new ground but but fred do you have any any other observations you want to make in response to anything that's been said here um, <clears throat> well basically what i've observed in listening to both of you <clears throat> is uh uh, Philip, you're you're interested in expanding your base of knowledge so that the language of the new physics uh, becomes part and parcel of what you use in your everyday life, and uh, uh, that's gonna that that in itself is a task which uh, requires uh, some effort. It's not an easy thing to do. And that's an important thing to do. Uh, so in Diane's case, I've already said much about her work and, and what uh, she's trying to do. She would hopefully, from what I hear her say, try to find out a way whether science can actually develop some sort of means, a new science perhaps, in which the things that she works with are in some sense, in some way, <clears throat> objectively quantifiable, maybe not measurable as numbers, but in some sense communicable uh, as processes or something of that sort. Um, now I'm going to just make some comments about both of these in one fell swoop, so to speak. The talk, we talked, we began with Bohr and Einstein, really, and therein is the dichotomy, which really we find, that's the horns of the dilemma. Uh, that we find ourselves grappling with. This is the bull that we can't quite get to ground. And it may be something we don't want to actually ground at all. This may be a power which unveils, which encompasses all. It may be the mind of God itself that we're dealing with here. Uh, there is a material world. If there weren't, then everything would be just un not visible or invisible, but whatever you think happens, whatever you don't think doesn't happen. It would be a myriad of chaos, of chaotic thinking. Everybody would try to get what they want whenever they want, and it would come true. And, and there would be nothing to hang our hat on, so to speak. 
so that the world of pure epistemology doesn't work. Uh, it's going to fail. Uh, uh, it, it needs something to ground itself in, and that comes. That's the world of materiality. That's the material universe, and that's why the material universe becomes so important to us. It's extremely important because <clears throat> we need to not only master it but live within it and recognize what its confines and limits are in terms of what they actually are or how they are put into play and how they can be expanded and whether or not one should expand them. And those are questions which get into what we think is real affects what is real. Um, so there are many, many wonderful areas of exploration here, which really are, I guess, the major boundary of the, the major uh, philosophical discourse, which has been going on for centuries, uh, maybe even millennia, uh, going back to the, maybe further than the Greeks, even to the ancient Hebrews. I mean, this is a, these are age-old questions. Quantum physics has brought, I think, new light into being. It's, it's, it's exposed and made knowable things which were not previously knowable at all, uh, made realizable things which were considered total fantasy before. I've seen this in my own lifetime. I mean, things like quantum teleportation was considered to be, I mean, if you talked about that back in 1970, 1980, you would be considered not only a nut, yeah. but you would, be, you would be considered to be the worst possible physicist at all. Yeah. You, you know, what are you talking about? That's impossible, yeah. totally impossible. That's how... We used to think. Even when we knew quantum physics, we still would never recognize these, these metaphysical or epistemological or these becoming known features of quantum physics, which completely have now opened up a whole new field of technology, as well as fields of thinking and even affecting our, psych our psyches. So to me, um, I don't see a problem having both horns of the dilemma and the paradox, which, which is constantly being formed and reformed and solved, then resolved and reformed again, that arises by being and constantly being tossed on the horns of this quantum dilemma. To me, it's wonderful. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that, mm. yeah, that's great, Diane. Any any passing words, Diane? Before we, <laughs> I don't want to follow that. <laughs> I know. So I well know. said. Well, that was a good I, I did want to just say two, uh, one short thing uh, that came to me while you were speaking, uh, Fred, and uh, just acknowledge both of you. But the thing that came was when you were talking about how you know if it we didn't have the physical world, and I would say it, adding in the physical laws, and it made me think of the metaphor, which is really the outer reality that we see of governance. If It's like having uh, a society where, you know, the, a lawless society where, and if you apply that to what what you were just saying, Fred, that's what came to me, that having the classical, you know, having both of these views and being able to work with the paradox of them is seeing also that, you know, you know, when you said, oh, everybody would just have a thought and it would just materialize. Well, you know, maybe it does in some dimension, who knows, but in terms of 
a collective, collaborative, co-creative, shared reality that obviously that doesn't work in this dimension that we're actually of ordinary reality that we're living in. So it's perfect to be able to discover the infinite possibility within the frame within a framework that as you say that grounds it and that and that and that governs it. And I think that's uh, so I wanted to just you know say that's what I got as you were speaking, Fred. And I want to also let everyone know that in terms of learning and really, you know, just listening to Fred Allen Wolf, Dr. Fred Allen Wolf, it speaks, you know, <laughs> speaks volumes just listening to you, to him, I'm speaking to listeners now, that the many books, uh, the work, the thinking that goes into it and the, the, the uh, intent to have us as non-science lay people actually be able to grasp these ideas and have us think and expand from it. I couldn't recommend his books more as the place to go for the scientific foundation of knowledge and you know the most advanced I would say so I wanted to say that and thank you and also to you Philip for this show conversations beyond science and religion it says it right there in the context of your title that you know you're making so much of the conversation that is actually shaping the new voice, the new world, uh, the new, you know, putting into the ethers, mm -hmm. <laughs> in quotes, into these the conversations is so important. And so I want to thank you and, and just thank you for uh, having me be part of it. Okay, well, okay, well, thank you. And, and one more thing, uh, Fred, your website, if people want to find out more about you, it's, it's uh, can you let listeners know what your website is? <clears throat> well, uh, you can find me on the web, fredallenwolf.com, uh, and you can look me up. If you just type in my name, yeah. uh, there's on, in your favorite search engine, you'll find yeah. many places where you can find references to my work. Yeah. Uh, I have a website. I've got a tweet. I tweet. I have a Twitter page. I have a Facebook page. Uh, I have a blog page. I don't always update them on a regular basis, but every once in a while I think of something to put on them. Yeah. So uh, uh, you can you can always find my website. Yeah, and as Diane, uh, yeah, and, and, and as Diane said, you know, go to the bookstore and pick up one of Fred's books. You'll you'll really enjoy. And Diane, your website again for for listeners. It's DianeCollins.com. Diane with two N's, Collins with two L's. Dot com and. Uh, You'll find audio there. You'll find some information about my book, access to it. And I've started blogging, so you'll find that as well. And um, right, let's let's um, let's just keep expanding this and become the new voice of society. That's what, I don't mean that like a political movement, <laughs> but I mean it just yeah. as a way of literally creating a better world together. 
Yeah, and that's what it's all about. And I'd like to thank you both uh, so much for your time, for, for dealing with a couple technical glitches here or there. Um, this, this has been a, a, um, a great show in, I think, covering areas in, different, in, in, a, in a new way and expanding horizons. Uh, as, as Fred said, the debate between Bohr and Einstein continues t uh, to this day, and it's likely to continue for many decades, if not centuries, longer. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Meriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com.